open it with the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thess chapter 3. If you were with us two weeks ago, we saw that Paul, the apostle, had traveled to a city called Corinth. Uh, it's where we get First and Second Corinthians from. That's the letters that he wrote to that church from another place. But here he had been in Thessalonica and he had traveled down to Corinth and uh, he was thinking about this church in Thessalonica and had decided that it was time to write to them. And so, as we know, uh, through the book of Acts, that uh, he, he had some traveling companions. It was he and a guy by the name of Silas, another guy they picked up along the way named Timothy, and they had traveled together. They, they had met with Luke and left him at Philippi, but they had traveled together to Thessalonica, and they had been there for about three weeks, three or four weeks, maybe max, before trouble broke out. Persecution arose, and Paul was forced to leave. Uh, he's writing back now to this church because he's burdened for them. There were issues that had come up because it didn't take long after he left for the false teachers and false accusations to begin to fly. Uh, he's, in the beginning of chapter 2, we saw how he defended those accusations and that he writes to them and saying, look, this is what I, this was the motive of my heart. This is why I came to you. I came to you with pure motives and with, with intentions to bring to you the gospel of Christ. In the second chap, half of chapter two, he, he shifts gears from defending himself to now talking about the believers there in Thessalonica and that he commends them because he said, you heard, you received, and then you welcomed the word of God into your hearts. He said you, you welcomed it not as the words of man, but as the word of God. Uh, as he ministered, he, he ministered to them for a short time. Uh, it was important now for Paul that they realized that he was simply a vessel through whom God was speaking. They recognized that this doesn't want, he wasn't just some guy giving his opinions, uh, that as they welcomed his words into their hearts, they were welcoming it as the word of God. And because of that, as they acted upon God's word, I shared the last time we were together, that you always act on what you believe, an immutable principle, you will always, always, always act on what you believe. And, And because they had believed and trusted that this was the word of God, it had opened a door for God by his spirit to work effectively in their lives. And folks, that is a principle that is alive and well today. As we embrace the word of God, that's why we do what we do here. We teach you God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because God by his spirit, we talked about that, that it's the, <laughs> it's the word of God being taken by the spirit of God, being driven into the hearts of the people of God. And that's how we grow. That's how we change. That's how we're conformed to the image of his son. Uh, part of what we like to say here is that we're learning to think like Jesus, and that's the process within which we do. Finally, we saw at the end of chapter 2 that Paul looked upon the Thessalonians. Remember, he had said, I was like a, a mother to you, like a mother with a, 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 a nursing babe. Uh, I was tender. I was loving towards you. He said, I was also like a father. I exert, ex- encouraged you. I exhorted you. And, you know, it's kind of get out there and get that thing done kind of a thing. And And so he was both to them. But then he also says at the end of chapter 2, he says, you are our crown. Well, what does he mean by that? And in the first century, the Olympic Games back then, they had, uh, they would have, it was called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat. 
where they would crown the victors with a, a laurel wreath. You've seen those probably in uh, folklore and in history and all of that. And that was the crown. And the word crown here is the word wreath. And what he's saying is, and as we know, in First Thessalonians, every chapter in this book ends with Paul bringing up and mentioning, and in chapter 4 we'll see that he goes does a deep dive on it, talking about the coming of Christ. And so he ends saying, you're our crown. In other words, you were the people that we were able to reach for Christ, and that when we get to that bema seat, when we get our rewards, that we want to be part of that group that stands together with you at the bema seat, at the judgment seat. And so it's a beautiful way that he puts that uh, in uh, at the end of chapter 2. And as we get into chapter 3, uh, brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Go through the first three verses here. He says, therefore, and when you see the word therefore, remember, therefore is like a hinge. It connects what's been said to what's about to be said. And so he's saying, therefore, because you are our wreath, our crown, because we want to stand with you in eternity at the judgment seat of Christ, he says, that's our heart's desire. Because of that, we could no longer endure it. We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Interesting. He talks about afflictions and he talks about being appointed to afflictions. We'll talk about that more as we go along this morning because that is a, a, a big part of what it is to have an accurate view of the Christian life. So in looking at these three guys, these three men, uh, we know that Paul, because he was the mouthpiece, he was the guy that was out there working at Thessalonica, he had a bullseye on his back. And he had, when, when trouble rose, I mean, they were, they wanted to get a hold of him and they wanted to kill him. And so when he left, he had to leave, or when that trouble came, he had to leave. And we also know that Silas was with him when he left Thessalonica and they went to Berea, a town nearby, and, and we're told that the Bereans were more noble as they began to preach the gospel there because they searched the scriptures to see if they were so, the things that they were saying were accurate, which is something we all ought to do. But so Silas goes with him. Well, why didn't Silas stick around? You got to remember, Silas was a Jew. He came from Jerusalem. Remember when Paul and Barnabas got back from their first missionary journey, they were at Antioch in Syria, and some false teachers had come up from Judea and began to peddle false doctrines. So they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. The, the apostles wrote a letter, sent it back with them, and they sent Silas as one of the guys that would validate that this letter, talking about how they were to interact with the Gentiles, was from the apostles, that this was official church business. So Silas is a Jew. He can't stick around either because the people stirring up the trouble at Thessalonica are Jews as well. And so he has to leave. Well, <laughs> uh, Timothy, on the other hand, uh, remember, he was a Gentile. We looked at that as we were going through the book of Acts. They, and when they picked up Timothy at Lystra, it says that he was the son of a Greek man. So he's a Gentile. But he also had believing a believing mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Uh, we see their names talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So up until this point, we don't see Timothy much, and because and he must have had a low profile as they went along. He was Paul's protege. He was learning. He was growing. And he was about to be used in a significant way. He would go on to be the pastor of the church at Ephesus. 
which was a big church, but that would be later on in his life. Here, Timothy was evidently proven in Paul's mind because you've got to know that Paul was watching this guy and he was looking to see what he was made of. He was looking to see if he had, if he had the real deal. He was looking to see if God's call was on his life to lead people and to go and to be the one that God was calling now to go back and to encourage the church at Thessalonica because they were going through tough stuff. He was God's choice. Now, an underlying theme in this letter is that difficulties in persecution, yes, they affected Paul and Silas and Timothy, but they also profoundly affected the people at the Thessalonican church, the people that in their, in their body, the, the persecution was mounting. People did not like God's method. The Jews hated it. They could not handle God's method of salvation. You mean it's by grace? And they couldn't handle God's choice for Messiah. Some carpenter from Galilee, are you serious? And So they rejected and they were hostile towards anybody that put forth this gospel of Jesus. So as a result, persecution, affliction had broken out with the church at Thessalonica. In chapter 1, verse 6, we read, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 2, if you were with us, he likens this Gentile church. He said, you're enduring the same type of persecution that the Christians did in Judea at the hands of the Jews years before. Here in chapter 3, in verse 3, he's telling the Thessalonians not to be shaken. Because, and pay attention to this, folks, trouble in the Christian life is the norm. It is not the exception. We're going to look at that more this morning as we go. And I look at these things, and I see these things written for us in God's Word. They're written for our instruction. So much for the prosperity gospel. You know, so much for, you know, yeah, you just trust Jesus. You can have all the goods that you, you know, all of that. Another thing I think about it is I, I think, well, so much for what I call Betty Crocker Christianity. And you know, that's sort of the idea that, well, you know, I'm good and God's good and we're all good and let's all be good together. And, you know, it's a, and it's a very shallow approach to something that God intends to have great depth in our lives. So as he's going along here, he's sending Timothy back to minister God's truth to these people, to comfort them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to minister to them. Verse 4, he says, For in fact, we, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. So now, he speaks of suffering tribulation. In the original, that's one word. Uh, but <laughs> I was thinking about this. You know, I like to just kind of dissect Bible words, all right? You hear the word tribulation a lot if you're in Bible circles, and that's fine. But when my kids were growing up, if one of them got out of line, I didn't like wag my finger at them and say, hey, listen here, Buster, you are in so much tribulation. No, that's not how it works. I mean, the, the word simply means trouble. All right? Understand that. So when he says you're suffering tribulation, in this context, that word means um, to cause someone to suffer trouble or hardship. And, and folks, if you look around, I mean, look at the events of this last week in the Middle East. And look at the affliction that's come upon those people. Look at people that are suffering trouble or hardship at the hands of others. You don't need me to tell you that trouble is here. It is in our world and it is mounting and it's not over. It's part of this life. Now, we often experience trouble, tribulation, affliction, same thing, same concept, 
on a personal level in our lives. We go through trials, don't we? We go through areas where we get stretched. We go through areas that are painful. And it might be health, it might be relationships, it might be marriage, it might be kids, it might be finances. But we go through things. We go through trouble. We also, at times, experience trouble on a national level. And when I, what I mean by that is, is I think about 9-11. I think about Pearl Harbor that started World War II. I think about wars that our nation has been engaged in and how they affect our lives in a national sense. But folks, there are also times, times like this, where we see circumstances in our world that hold the potential, that hold great potential for global trouble. It's here. Now, Jesus told us this would happen. So did the Apostle Paul. Here, he, he, he assures us that, again, trouble at the hands of others in this life, that's the norm. It's not the exception. It's part of living in the kingdom of man. And we need to be informed because we certainly haven't seen the end of it. With that in mind, I want to spend the balance of our time this, and look at current world events in light of the prophetic word uh, from in, one end of the spiritual spectrum to the other. And then I want to look at some things as we wrap up that I think are very interesting that have to do with the day that all of these things took place last week. So going in, I want you to know this will not be a deep dive. We do not have time. We could spend weeks on these things. But I want you to have an overview because I want you to be informed. I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor if I did not inform our people from a biblical worldview, from God's word, what's going on. And I'll do my best to convey that accurately. I actually got up this morning and check the news so that I'd know that my notes were accurate because these things are shifting quickly and 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 alliances are shifting and and this is a very fluid situation that we find ourselves in in our world but we need to pay attention we need to be informed in Matthew chapter 24 uh, if you're a student of prophecy or a student of the Bible you know that passage in verse 3 we read now as he Jesus sat on the mount of olives his disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear, verse 6, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Trouble. See to it that you're not troubled, he says. Now, trouble, this is a different word. And this word trouble, it means to be in a state of fear that's associated with surprise. Don't be shocked by what you see around you. And, and there are shocking things going on, but as that shock wears off, don't be surprised. He says, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. Again, uh, trouble, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, disease, and earthquakes, trouble in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. So the question becomes, does the Hamas invasion of Israel figure in biblical prophecy? And I'll tell you, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Let me explain. In verse 7 here in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So what's the difference? Why does he make that distinction? In the original language, the Greek word for nation here is ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnic. Uh, and so what he's essentially saying is that one group, one ethnos, will rise against another. Now, the Greek word for kingdom is basileia, and that indicates a geographical region or a country. Okay, He's talking about groups and country. In, in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, 
we see there a prophecy described about a future war involving Gog and Magog. Now, according to the text, several events or conditions are mentioned that must take place before the Gog and Magog war. These included, and again, this is not a deep dive. I could go through a whole list of things, but I want to bring out some of the more prominent ones so that you understand where we're going with this. But first, the first thing I want to look at is the restoration of Israel. Ezekiel 38.12 mentions that the people of Israel will have experienced a period of restoration and regathering from among the nations. And in May 1948, this part of this prophecy was fulfilled. They became a nation once more after 2,000 years. Never happened before in history. The second is we're told in Ezekiel 38.8 that Israel will be dwelling securely in the land. Uh, it says that they'll be living securely and in a state of relative peace before the invasion by Gog and his allies. Folks, this too has been fulfilled. Israel, I mean, they have the most powerful military in the Middle East, and they are dwelling securely as much as man can be secure in their land. Uh, and, and God has miraculously come to their aid time and again. The third thing I want to look at and I want to pay attention to is the alliance of nations. Ezekiel 38.4 and following also speaks of God being gathered along with a coalition of nations. This suggests that before that war, there will be an alliance of various countries. Overlaying the names given in Ezekiel with the countries that we see in our day, because they were known regions, they were known countries, we see that the most likely alliance will be between Russia, Iran, and Turkey, along with some northern African nations. They're, they're, they're included in there as well. Now, some also believe that the city of Damascus, Syria, must be destroyed prior to this war. All right, uh, Its destruction is described in Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. Now, it's a matter of interpretation on that. It may or may not be necessary for this war to come about. I'm not going to. I'm not going to hang up on that. I think it's up for grabs. You might have a different opinion. You're welcome to it. We're Again, we're heavily into interpretation on this. But here's my point. The events unfolding in the Middle East between the Jews and Hamas is not the Ezekiel 38 war. It's a group against a group. Ethnos against ethnos. So-called Palestinians, Arabs, and Jews at this time. And Ezekiel 38 is clear that there, it will be geographical countries who will align together against Israel. Understand that. However, here's the caveat. These events could easily constitute a lead-up to the Ezekiel 38 war. It could happen. And I'll tell you what. We know that Iran has been funding not only Hamas in the Gaza Strip, but a vastly larger and more formidable army in Hezbollah to the north in southern Lebanon. Uh, I did some looking at that, and and. Hezbollah boasts an army of about 100,000 men. It's a big force. And, and that's why, by the way, that's why the United States sent an aircraft carrier to park off the coast and say, don't even think about it. Uh, because they are, they are absolutely a, a formidable threat to Israel, especially if Israel is fighting a, a war on the Gaza front and they can split them and be on the, the northern front as well. They can weaken their forces. And so the United States has come to their aid, and I am so glad that we are. Another very interesting aspect of this is Russia's involvement. Now, while Hamas is funded by Iran, the terrorists there in Gaza were trained by a Russian group called the Wagner Group. 
Okay, and you might have heard of them. They were the ones that marched on Moscow a couple months ago, and, and they stopped, and they made a deal with Putin. Uh, suddenly here, a couple of weeks ago, the, the leader of the Wagner group, what he died in, in a mysterious plane crash, surprise. But these guys were coming from an incursion in Africa, and they went to Gaza, and they began to train the people there. Russia has also signaled that they will intervene in the event the United States becomes involved militarily in the region. And a couple of days ago, Putin, you know, he finally, after a lot of international pressure, you know, kind of conceded, yeah, that was a bad thing to do. But don't be deceived. They are against Israel. Simultaneously, the Turkish president, Erdogan, uh, he refuses to identify Hamas as a terrorist group. And he says Hamas is not a terrorist organization and the Palestinians are not terrorists. He, he goes on to say he says, Hamas is a resistance movement that defends the Palestinian homeland against an occupying power. He refers to Israel as an occupying power over the Palestinians' homeland. He's also on record in 2019, quoting him, he said, whoever is on the side of Israel... Let everyone know that we are against them. So if you're a friend of Israel, you're no friend of ours, is what Erdogan says. So presently, all of the pieces, all of the players are on the board. They're there. And individually, all of them are hostile to one degree or another towards Israel. However, they have not yet coalesced to form the Ezekiel 38 alliance of countries. Individually, they're all there. Individually, they're all active. But we haven't seen that that joining together, that alliance form that Ezekiel warns of or that he speaks of. So with that in mind, looking at all of that, very interesting. We need to be informed. We need to be alert. We need to be educated from, a, again, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview as to what's going on with these things. I want to shift our focus here and look at something that's been on my mind and heart. Uh, since very early, just moments after hearing of the Jews' massacre last Sunday, um, uh, just some things began to come to mind and, and, and began to uh, just work within me, and I want to share those with you. So going back to Thessalonians, Paul's biggest concern for the Thessalonian church was that the persecution and affliction that they were enduring would be used by Satan to draw them away from their devotion to Christ. Very concerned about that. In verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, not knowing what's going on with you is what he's intending there, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Jesus speaks about this in the parable of the sower, where he talks about the four conditions of the human heart. And one of those conditions is that that when trouble comes, when tribulation or when persecution comes, you're out of here. You're not going to stand. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to shipwreck the faith. Paul's concern is along those lines for the Thessalonians because they were going through it. They had really tough stuff. He's already said, look, you were appointed to affliction. Don't be surprised. That's the norm. That's the rule, not the exception. And so now he's saying, look, behind that is the powers of darkness, Satan himself trying to thwart you, trying to hold you back to deceive you into thinking this is just too much. It's, the cost is too great. I'm giving up. I'm walking away from it. Great concern that he had. And once again here, we see the unseen powers of darkness uh, in, the, in that unseen realm working through evil men and through difficult circumstances to tempt them to loosen their spiritual grip. Folks, it happens. There are times we go through things and we go through trouble 
and the enemy's right there to say, you know what, you're trusting Jesus, that's all of us. Now you need to take things into your own hand. You need to just go, I could go on and on about that. It's a real threat that we have because we go through tough stuff. Last week's massacre, it fell upon the last day of Sukkot. If you are familiar with the Jewish feast, uh, Sukkot was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Um, it fell on the last great day of the feast. And, and I'll explain. In, in Leviticus, this Feast of Tabernacles is laid out and it was a seven-day feast. Now, it started on at, at, at sundown on a Friday night and went through the entire week until sundown on the following Friday night. By the time that Jesus' day came, they had added a day, an eighth day to this feast. And that eighth day was the great day of the feast. It was it was sort of to tie everything together and to finish it off with a bang. I mean, they had, and they changed the way they did things. We'll get into that. And it was, it was, and this particular feast, it was the last feast of the seven feast cycle that Israel had annually. And so here's the greatest feast. It was also the feast with the most celebration. It was a joyous, joyous time. And the people would be, they would converge on Israel. There were seven feasts. Three of them were mandatory for if you were a male over 20 years old, you brought your family and you had to go to that feast. It was, it was a mandated thing. So the hills around Jerusalem would have been covered with these booths, these little tent, like a pup tent, with these little dwelling places where the people would camp out for the whole week. And it was a great time. There were also some very interesting things that went on with the priests and the priesthood and the people there with Judaism that we'll look at as we go. So remember that day in our time was last Saturday. All right. It was also 50 years from the time that the Syrian army rolled tanks through the Valley of Tears up in the Golan Heights, hundreds of tanks, and began the 1973 Yom Kippur War against Israel. Stacey and I stood at the Valley of Tears looking out over it. We were 40 miles from Damascus looking out over this whole barbed wire thing, uh, pictures of us going up in the bus, going up to this lookout where we were, and you could not leave the road. Every few feet there was a sign saying, Danger, Landmine. All right. It's still a very hot area in that region. So here, Israel is attacked in 1973 on the same day. That was part of what they did here was because they know that the people are in a, in a mindset of celebration. They're in a mindset of, of it's, it's Shabbat. It's not only Shabbat. It's a feast day. It's a great big deal for these people. And so they're thinking that's when their defenses will be down. And they were. But I want to look at another significant event that took place on this day, the last great day of the feast. Six months before he went to the cross, the Lord Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It was the last and most joyful, again, of the feast, and and this would be his last time to attend this feast. So, as I mentioned, they'd they'd spend the week in these lean-tos commemorating all that God had done for Israel in their history. And what this was, was, was a time to remember back and to look back at when Israel had been delivered from Egypt and was wandering around out there in the wilderness, and God had miraculously provided for them as they went along. So as they were wandering there, uh, they, the children of Israel got thirsty. And so they cried out to Moses and they said, Moses, we don't have any water. And so Moses cries out to God and they come to a place called Horeb. 
And at Horeb, there was a rock, this big rock. I'd like to see what it looks like. I hope they have re But essentially, there's this big rock at Horeb, and God says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your staff and go over, and I want you to strike that rock. So Moses does it, and as he does that, water gushes out of the rock. The people are miraculously provided with water. So to commemorate that event in Jesus' day, Every day, the priests would fill pitchers with water from the pool of Siloam below the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, let me talk about that a little bit. Uh, I got a great article from Mary Starrett here a few weeks ago uh, about how they're currently excavating a huge part of this pool. Uh, Stacey and I were there. We went to the pool of Siloam, and it was a very small area, kind of bleachers and then a little bit of water a few years ago, but now it's like this huge area that's being excavated. So, and I, I wish I'd have thought about producing a slide because I'd show you where it's at. But the Temple Mount was here, and you have the the valley, the Kidron Valley here along the eastern side of the temple, and it goes down and intersects with the Valley of Gehenna. You may have heard of that in the Bible, or in the Old Testament it was the Valley of Hinnom. And right at the intersection of these two valleys was this pool. So the priests would leave the Temple Mount. They would walk through the city and down to this pool. And every day during this feast, they would fill pitchers with water. And then they would walk back up through the city into the temple courts. Once they got there, they would pour the water on the ground uh, there in the temple courts. And the, the people would use that as symbolic of God's providing water for them in the wilderness. So... That's what they did every day during the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. On the last day, the great day of the feast, they changed things up. They did things a little bit different. This time, not just the priest, but the high priest would take, and not just a, a, a common pitcher, but he would take a golden pitcher, and he would go down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, when he went, there would be a whole processional of people, this, this of priests and, and the people, a huge crowd would follow him down out of the city, down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would fill that golden pitcher, and then he would make his way back up through the city into the temple courtyard. There, he would pour the water out right in front of the altar where they did the sacrifices and all of that. He would pour the water out from this golden pitcher. As the high priest poured the water out, Remember, thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands. It was a huge crowd because it was a major pilgrimage. They would be looking on. So at this point, because Israel commemorated their past through God's provision, things switched up a little bit. And now on this, the last, the great day of the feast, it was not just to commemorate Israel's past, but it was anticipating the future. So as the high priest poured the water out of the pitcher, he would read from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. Now we've added chapter and verses, but he would read from this part of the scroll of Isaiah, where it says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendant. So the priest, having read this verse, would then say to the people on that last day, Let's now pray for the coming of Messiah, looking forward. So this whole convocation of thousands of people would then bow their heads and pray that the one who would pour out the Spirit upon them, the one who would come, that Messiah would come. It would have been dead silent in that moment as everyone prayed. 
It's the climax of the convocation, of the week-long celebration, when the people are not only commemorating the past, but now they're anticipating, praying, send Messiah to deliver us. Pour out your Spirit upon us. And it would have been in this moment that the words that we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, come into play. Verse 37, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Now he is piercing the silence here as he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What a shock it would have been for this 33-year-old itinerant rabbi from Nazareth to, to begin to speak in the, in the midst of the silence of that moment and give this divinely inspired invitation to the people. Here he stood six months before he would be violently nailed to a wooden cross, crying out to the people, if you thirst, even as the water was being poured out, if you're praying for Messiah, if you're looking for the Spirit, come to me and drink. Now, it's so important in the midst of life's afflictions that we remember Jesus' invitation to them on that day remains his invitation to us on this day. Folks, that hasn't changed. You know, I look at this and I think what a life and death contrast there is between Jesus' words on this, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles in his day and the events which unfolded in the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles last week. My wife and I were coming to church this morning and it it was our first morning coming early for two services and and as we're coming, there were the cloud, the sky was dotted with clouds and the sun was coming up and the sunbeams were coming through the clouds. It was a beautiful sunrise. And she said, what a contrast. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, there's such beauty in the sunrise. Look, and, and you know, we looked and it was, a, it was a gorgeous sunrise. And she said, and to look at all of that and to think about what's going on in the world. And I said, I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> but the point is, that's true. What a contrast. What a contrast to the things that are going on when we look in the pages of Scripture and we see that on that day, Jesus made some of the most important announcements, proclamations that he would make in his earth. The invitation to come. The invitation to drink. The invitation to become a part of what he stands for this earth. Because it's only then that we will have understanding, be able to parse through the circumstances we see before us today. That's true. So, What's the takeaway, Pastor? (laughs) How do I process all of this? What can I do in the midst of these terrible, even frightening circumstances? Glad you asked. I want to look at four things as we begin to wrap up. I said begin, but they're important. Folks, the first is to be committed to prayer. Now, I know you're sitting in church and it's Sunday morning. You'd expect the pastor to say that, right? But I'm not talking about praying like you pray over a hamburger at lunch. I'm talking about laboring in prayer. Folks, these things are happening and they're happening on a global scale. We don't, and I'm not going to even try to guess where it's going. Maybe it'll settle down. Maybe it won't. You know, the term World War III is getting tossed around a lot out there. I don't know where it's going to go, but I do know the one and I want to stay connected. I want to bathe these in prayer. I want to labor in prayer. I ask God, Lord, disturb my sleep. And he does. If I know of something that's going on in one of your lives or things that are happening in our world, 
I, I wake up through the night and I just, it's like that'll be right there. And I'll think, okay, Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me, giving me the opportunity to pray for this or for that person or for the situation or for our world. So when I say be committed to prayer, it's kind of like that. And I want my prayer life to increase. I'm not saying I'm there, but it's so important that we keep the communication between us and the Lord open and allow him to, to initiate those prayers in our hearts that we lift back up to him. Psalm 122, verse 6, tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And from the moment I heard about the slaughter of human life, I began to pray that prayer. Remember Brian and I, last Saturday morning, we were coming out of Lowe's and coming over to the church and stuff. And we prayed all the way over here. Just prayed together. Just brothers coming together and saying, Father, we don't know what's going on. You know, we need to, we just need to pray. And we pray for these people. We pray for Israel. We pray for, and, 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 and folks, that's what we need to do. It's not just something that we like to do. It's something we need to be of prayer. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pay, pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the Palestinian people, for the Arabs that are caught in this whole thing. I was looking at news reports where Israel has said, leave the northern part of the Gaza Strip because we're going to bomb it because that's where the enemy is. And that Hamas is actually blocking the people's way from being able to leave. They're using their own people as human shields. Pray, yeah, for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Israel, but pray for those people. They're people for whom Christ died. And we can't just group them all together. Oh, those Palestinians. That, that is just wrong. It's just wrong. So be committed to prayer. Now, if you're not, if you're not sure what, what to pray for specifically, we put a, as a starting point, you know, I resist prayer lists, but as a starting point, we put a list of things in, in the bulletins morning, uh, just some points to, uh, to be mindful of as you pray. The second thing, how do I process this? What do I do? What's my part? Be vigilant, but don't live in fear. Folks, we need to have our eyes open. We need to be vigilant. We have a real enemy and he really is interested in taking. Be aware. Just be aware. And not everybody in the world is good. We've gotten a huge dose of that recently. And as we see here in Thessalonians, bad things happen to good people. Persecution, affliction happens. It comes. Whether it's on a personal level, a national level, or a global level, we face trouble. Be vigilant. Don't be in, don't live in fear. The Bible tells us that the spirit of fear is not of the Lord. So who does that imply it is from? Yeah. The God of this world. That was Paul's concern. He didn't want these people shrinking back in fear because they're coming into persecution and affliction in Thessalonica. He's saying, I don't want Satan to tempt you away from devotion to Christ. That can happen. And what does he do? One of his main tools is he employs fear. He is so deceptive. So guard your heart from living in fear. Understand, you know what? I've read the end of the book. We win. Understand that God does have this. He is working his purposes out in the midst of it all. And that it is good in the final analysis. And I do not, I will not even try to understand why God allows, especially on the magnitude of like the Holocaust or these things that happened last week. I don't understand. He says, my ways are different than your ways that you're finding out. But I will tell you this, I trust exclusively and implicitly, I trust the Lord. I don't understand. And when I come to the end of my understanding, that's when I look. Walk in the understanding that you, if you know the Lord Jesus this morning, you are a citizen of heaven and you are living in the kingdom of man. So be diligent, be circumspect. Now, circumspect, that's another Bible word. What if, if Take that word apart, circle, inspect. What he's saying is look all around as you go. Be circumspect, be inspecting in a circle. Keep your eye on what's happening around you. 
And that might be close by, it might be far away, but have your eyes open. That's the point. Even if things get hard, choose not to live in fear. Folks, these are difficult days, and they might become more difficult. And I'm again, I'm not trying to be a harbinger of, of you know bad things to come or anything like that. I don't know any more than you do. But there's some stuff going on that we need to have our eyes open. One of the things that comes to my mind is not only do we have instability, huge amounts of instability in the Middle East, but we have an unsecured southern border in our country at this moment. And folks, there are tens of thousands of military-age males from other countries included in incursion at the southern border. We don't know who they are. And in many cases, we don't know where they are. And again, it's not something to be fearful of. It's something to be aware of. That with open borders in our nation, it has led to an incursion of unknown proportions, of unknown people with unknown motives. I do know that they have identified at least 150 people that are on the terrorist watch list that have tried to come across the border. And I have to believe if those are the ones they caught, who are the ones that they haven't? I don't know. But be watchful, be vigilant, be fearful, but know what's going on. Another thing about that is anti-Semitism, being against the Jews. I am shocked when I look at the news and I look at the media and I look at the things that are being foisted on people already. Here you have the slaughter of hundreds and hundreds of innocent people, babies. And, and, and there are demonstrations, there are demonstrations in Portland, people that are pro-Palestinian, pro, yeah, it's like, how can, I, I, I do not want to understand the mindset that could transport me to that. But folks, it's there. Anti-Semitism is real. And my guess, and I think it's an educated one, is that it's going to ramp up understand. If you stand with Israel, and I pray that you do, I mean, we're told to in God's word, that that might put you in an unpopular stance. The third thing I want to talk about is be informed, but don't be. Be informed, but don't be deceived. Now, I'm going to give you a quote. This is from the fourth prime minister of Israel, Golda Meir. She said this. She said, we can forgive the Arabs for killing our children, but we cannot forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. We will only have peace with the Arabs when they love their children more than they hate us. Sobering quotes. True. Folks, there's a media war that's already being waged. The court of public opinion is huge because there are so many media outlets out there that are pumping things at us all the time. All the time. And there is the, the media war is real. Be aware already, and there will be more, guaranteed, the, the twisted narratives, very subtle at times, doctored images, fake news, they're already being deployed. We want to be informed. But don't be deceived. Israel's enemies want to show images of Israel inflicting as much damage as they can so that they can win the Mia War, so that they can prevail in the court of public opinion. Now, there are some really solid media outlets, some news sources out there. Uh, I'll give you three that I like, and welcome to shop for some yourselves. Uh, I, I downloaded the uh, Telegram app long, not long ago just because, and thank you, uh, <laughs> Daryl. Uh, Daryl kind of helped me get rolling on that because a guy by the name of Amir Sarfati, I don't know if you've heard of him. He has an organization called Behold Israel, and it started out where he was just kind of giving reports here and there, and he has turned into a full-blown media or, or news aggregator. He aggregates news, and he checks. He has reliable sources and his feed is extremely active. And I get up to the minute stuff, uh, and you can too, on what's going on over there. And he is a, he is a Messianic Jew. He's a Christian. 
Uh, very well known around Calvary Chapel circles. He used to be Pastor Chuck Smith's uh, tour guide when he'd take people to Israel. That's kind of how they got to know each other. But he's a very reputable guy. And his again, his ministry is Behold Israel, Amir Sarfati. That starts with a T. Now, if you go to the, the Telegram app, understand that there are a bunch of people that are mimicking his feed. Just make sure that you get to the feed that has like 400,000 followers and you'll have the right one. And that's what he said yesterday. He mentioned that. And a lot of people are popping up and trying to harvest our, our audience. Again, deception. Uh, another one is All Israel News, and that's a news organization. It's a great website. Also, they have a feed on Telegram, uh, and it is run by uh, evangelical Christians. And they aggregate the news, and as far as I can tell, I just got onto that a couple of days ago. Uh, it's very accurate, and there's really good content available on that. Uh, another one that I have, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this one, is Jan Markell. You may have heard of her uh, with uh, Olive Tree Ministries. Uh, very well-informed lady, and she has a, a, a big ministry, and her feed is pretty active as well. So again, it, it's, be informed, but understand that there is a ton of deception out there and, and things that will that are designed, specifically designed to manipulate the way you think about these things. So be careful. Finally, we'll wrap up with this. Be ready. You know, whenever they asked Jesus in, in Matthew 24, they said, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And then they asked Jesus again. If you see it in the book of Acts, they say, well, hey, uh, so when are you going to come back? And, and whenever he was asked, he never put the emphasis on when. He always responded with, well, the first time he said, uh, only the Father knows when they asked him there in Matthew. Um, he said, I don't know, only the Father knows. But in the book of Acts, he had already gone to the cross, resurrected, and so he knew. And so he doesn't say it that way the second time. He says, not for you to know. <laughs> and so, but the point in both of those is that it is to us not to try to figure out when. It could happen today. It could not, it might not happen for a hundred years. Be ready. That's the emphasis that Jesus puts on it. That's the emphasis that we need to have in our own hearts and lives. If you belong to Christ, order your life, order your priorities as though he's coming back today or tomorrow. However, plan as though he's not going to return for another hundred. And I think that that's just a wise balance. I know uh, a bunch of Calvary pastors back in the 80s, back when I was kind of uh, coming along Calvary Chapel and stuff, a bunch of, they were convinced that Jesus was going to return then. And many of you know, my peers, many guys, are they're suffering right now because they're not prepared because he didn't come back. So you want to prepare like he's not coming back, but you want to live like he is. Does that make sense? And again, wisdom, just being a good steward of that which God has given us. If you've never entered into a personal relationship with Christ, here's how you be ready. I want to ask you a question. Are you thirsty? And maybe maybe you have just been living, maybe your heart has been away from him. Maybe you've been living for yourself or you're caught up in an aspect of sin or you are in a place where you want to recommit your life to him. See the importance of staying close to him through these days. Here's the question. Are you thirsty for God? Are you thirsty? I want to encourage you, my friend. Come to Jesus and drink. Some of the most profound things, the statement that he made is right here in the Gospel of John. When he, and he broke through the silence at that feast and he shouted, come to me and drink. If you are thirsty, He was saying, look, you're asking for God to send the Messiah. You're asking for the Holy Spirit. And here I am. And folks, here he is. 
for us in our day. 2,000 years later, same day as that terrible thing that happened a week, he's beckoning and saying, if you are thirsty, I want you to come. That's not, you're not going to get water from a rock. The Bible tells us in, I think it's in Corinthians, uh, one of the Corinthian books, uh, that Jesus was that rock, that that symbolized him being the one that would give us the water to drink. So if you're thirsty, if you have a spiritual thirst and you want it to be quenched, how do you go about satisfying that thirst? You come to the rock. You give your heart to Jesus. If you have never given your heart to him for the first time, I encourage you to do so. He simply says, turn from the old life, from that way that you've been trying to manage your own life yourself, and embrace me. Give your heart to me. Allow me to fill you with my Holy Spirit, because in doing that, that's when the living water begins to gush out of your life. You can't have water gushing out if you don't have the Spirit coming in. So give your life to Him. He will quench your thirst like nothing else. Let's pray. Father, oh, as we race through these passages, as we look, Lord, at what was happening with the Thessalonian church, what Jesus had to say uh, about the end of the age, what you have to say to us about your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we assimilate the things we looked at, this process those in our own hearts and minds, that you, the object, devotion, the object of our affection, that we simply choose purpose in our hearts to live knowing this life, difficult as it is, Lord, that it's a vapor, and that eternity with you is at. So I pray for a person here, uh, people online, or those within the sound of my voice, that you'd work, that you would take our dented up lives, that you'd take the affliction that and use it somehow, some way, Lord, you would redeem it, that you would work it for you. Lord, let us be vessels through which and through which you operate, through whom you reach a really messed up world. And Father, we're thankful this belongs to you. We're thankful that we come and that we can drink in your word. And now I pray, Father, that as we act upon that word, as we come by faith, that our lives would be further transformed, would mold and shape us. That's our heart's desire. And without you, it's not going to happen. So we invite you to come, fill us up.